Welcome to the Bully Pulpit from the University of Southern California Center for the Political Future. Our podcast brings together America's top politicians, journalists, academics, and strategists from across the political spectrum for discussions on hot-button issues where we respect each other and respect the truth. We hope you enjoy these conversations. Welcome back. I'm Bob Schrum, the director of the Center for the Political Future at USC Dornsife. As we all know, this is Women's History Month. Appropriately, we're going to talk about women voters and the future of the two major parties, Democrats and Republicans. I want to introduce the folks who are going to be part of this. First, our moderator, and I want her to be more than a moderator, I hope, our absolutely spectacular fellow this semester, Shaniqua McClendon, who's the political director of Crooked Media, where she leads their political strategy and civic engagement program like Vote Save America and also created their successful 2020 volunteer engagement and fundraising program. She served on Capitol Hill as a policy advisor to Senator Kay Hagan and legislative director to Congresswoman Alma Adams. As I said, she's a a fellow and doing an unbelievable job. Students really love her. Rachel Hunt is a Democratic representative in the North Carolina House of Representatives, representing Mecklenburg County. She's a lawyer, college counselor, And the daughter of someone for whom I have enormous admiration, former North Carolina Governor Jim Hunt. Uh, She's in her second term and is vice chair of the Education Community Colleges Committee. And Barbara Comstock, who is also a spectacular spring 2021 fellow at the Center for the Political Future. She was elected to Congress in 2014, served two terms, representing Virginia's 10th congressional district, I think was a victim of the backlash against Donald Trump when she lost her seat in 2018. She's previously worked as a strategic advisor to both Mitt Romney and George W. Bush's presidential campaigns. Shaniqua, I'm turning it over to you. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you uh, to all of you who are joining us today. Um, I'm really excited about this conversation. Uh, There's been a lot of attention recently, um, not immediately recently, but in Um, especially since Donald Trump was elected on women voters and, you know, their reaction to Donald Trump, a lot of the shifts that we've seen and some of the electoral outcomes that we've seen over the past four years. So we're going to dive into that and have a bit of a conversation about that. And the first question I just wanted to open up with was all of the women that we've been seeing elected. And in 1992, it was deemed year of the woman. A lot of women were elected to Congress that year. And we saw that same framing used in 2018 when another historic year of women being elected, um, not only to Congress, but into elected office around the country. We did not hear that this year or in 2020. A lot of Republican women were actually elected to the U.S. House, but it was not framed in that same way. There could be many reasons for that, but I would love to hear what you all think about why it, it often feels like Democratic women get that leave or they get that enthusiasm when they are elected for being, you know, the year of the woman. Um, But Republicans who have struggled in the past actually elected a lot this year and didn't get that same attention when it happened for them. So we'd love to hear one, why we think um, more women are entering politics and being elected, but why Republicans didn't necessarily get that attention for doing the same thing. And Bob or Representative Hunt, whoever. Here I am in Women's History Month, the man talking about women voters. But uh, look, I think that uh, 
Republicans got smart in terms of their recruiting, uh, and they went out and they got some women who would be very competitive, for example, in some of these California congressional districts, uh, and managed to elect them. Why haven't they gotten more attention? I think it's partly because that attention has been crowded out by uh, the fact that there are at least two QAnon women in those Republican ranks, Marjorie Taylor Greene, for example, and they've sucked all the oxygen out of the story. I mean, the bigger story is that QAnon has come to Congress in the form of Republican representatives than that Republicans have elected more women. But I think you'll see Republicans recruiting women in 2022 and trying to elect more women because the gender gap is a real problem uh, for the Republican Party. Representative Hunt. Yes, I agree with that. Um, even in our state house, we saw an increase in the number of Republican women who were elected um, in the House and the Senate in North Carolina than we did in 2018. We also lost some women um, in the Democratic Party this year. They lost their elections. And so we, too, think that the Republicans have wised up. You know, we are a state that Trump did win. And there are a number of people who split their votes um, voting Democratic on the lower um, ticket and uh, for Trump on, you know, the higher ticket. So we know that they have figured out exactly um, how to go after their voters. And we are going to have to come back at them. Barbara Comstock is now here. So I can shut up. And Barbara, you, you have no idea what I said you know, as I was introducing you. And I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> sorry, sorry, I had a little logistics problems here. <laughs> no, no problem. We're happy that you're here with us. And I think, yeah, we'd love to hear your thoughts on this question. And I'll repeat it for you. Um, but was just reflecting how on in 1992 and in 2018, a lot of Democratic women were elected um, in response to what was happening in our political environment. And both of those years were deemed the year of the woman. But last year in 2020, Republicans actually elected a record, record number of women as well. But we didn't see that kind of framing around that happening. And just interested to know your thoughts on why Republican women weren't seen, um, their wave of elections weren't seen also as the year of the woman. There was a little, you were seeing more of it in November before the sort of big lie conspiracy theory election stuff came along and sort of drowned it out. But um, we, you know, I, I think after 2018, where, you know, Republicans got down to 13 and then two of them were retiring and we knew we were, you know, I think it was 6.5% of the caucus, that that was not a path to ever getting a majority. So I'm on two boards with women um, with the goal is to elect more Republican women. And we, um, you know, made a very deliberate effort to find women sort of in all of the seats, not just the swing seats, because women tended to be like, oh, yeah, you can go be the nominee in the really tough seats. <laughs> we'll give you those. But then when the really red seats open up, you know, then the guys all want to get in and crowd out the women. So we went into a lot of primaries and focused on getting women. And we did what the Democrats did in 18, which was find state and local legislators who already had government experience, who already had campaign experience, who had already won and had a footprint in their district. And that model does tend, I mean, there's a reason why most of the women in Congress, both Democrat and Republican, have had some type of government service before. You know, it, it does make you a, a, a better candidate and give you, you know, 
just more depth in, in, in knowing your district and the, you know, the, the personalities and, uh, and all of the issues within your district. So that is what we did in 2020. And we have two women right now. I think, well, we have one woman running in a special election in Louisiana. Her husband, unfortunately, died of COVID. And I think she's the odds-on favorite to win. And then there is another woman with, unfortunately, the second member of Congress who died from COVID. His widow is also looking at running, and she looks like she might be. We're not involved in that race yet, but it looks like she might be a favorite also. But, and there are some other women who might run there. But uh, so I think more women are standing up and they're not waiting to be asked to the prom. You know, when they saw all the Democrats get the seats in, in six and 18, they thought, well, gee, we want to see a more diverse group of women out there. And you're never going to reach parity if you don't um, have more Republican women, because I don't think the Democrat guys are going to give away all their seats. Um, so <laughs> you have to, uh, we need to, uh, have, and not just women, but have more diversity on our side too. And that's another thing that we, you know, we had the first two Korean American women elected um, from California. They were uh, two candidates that we invested in. They outran Trump. I mean, Trump was definitely a inhibiting factor in even getting people to run because they knew that was going to be a challenge. But I think now that, well, I think Trump's moving out of the picture. I would argue that is the case, but I think that will help get more women to step up. Now they're not going to wait and think someone's going to invite them to the prom. They're they're going to jump in themselves. Yeah, and really quickly before the next question, um, you brought up women having to be asked to run for office. Were how many times did you all have to be asked to run, or did you just decide I'm going to run on your own? Well, I've been asked for about seven years, so I. I wait. I said I would wait until my children were out of out of the house. That was my big deciding factor, um, and I did that. And I'm very, very happy I did because it's a more than full time job at you know thirteen thousand a year. <laughs> I ran after my kids were out of school, well, off to college too. And although you know, since we have a lot of members, Republican members now who do have young children, or um, you know. They want to talk to someone who has, you know, we, we do have women, you know, Kathy McMorris Rogers and Jamie Herrera Butler had three women, three children while they were in Congress. You know, they both came to Congress, I think, unmarried, got married and had the kids while they were there. So there's always sort of a model of, of what you've had. I, I did. Um, I had worked in government a lot, worked on campaigns, worked for members of Congress and also I never had really, I had never thought, oh, gee, I want to have that job because I, I enjoyed working with them. But because my husband is a teacher, I was the primary breadwinner as an attorney. And frankly, I couldn't afford to when I was younger to like have the time away from home and have, you know, make less money. Um, actually, you know, the state house that I ran for was 17000 Congress was a little more, but it still was, you know, less than what I've been making as an attorney. So that often can be a factor in, you know, and I know as I tried to recruit some women who, you know, had very senior positions and roles, um, if they had both children and senior roles, it was like, well, how do I give up my job that makes all the money and take the time away from the kids? So it always has to be right for you personally, both in, you know, timing for, you know, your life and what, works out as well as, you know, right, you know, 
that it's a good year to run to. <laughs> I got asked my first time when I ran for the state house. I, I got asked by both a former member of Congress that, um, or as well as the Speaker of the House, came to me and said, "Hey, we we need somebody." And it was running against another woman who was a freshman, and they they asked me to run. And um, I it wasn't something I had thought about. And one of the reasons I started a young women's leadership program was because I realized I had never myself thought to run and no women had come to me and asked me to run. It was two men. And in that, and I, they sort of pushed me in the pool. And I, um, it was only after that I realized that we should be telling more women to run. But at the end of the, like in guys, most guys, you know, they don't need anyone to tell them to run. They run. And when, when the congressional seat opened up where I, after I was in the state house, I didn't wait to be, I mean, people did call and say you should run, but I made the decision pretty quickly at that point. I did not wait to be asked to the prom that time. You know, I've been fortunate, you know, people have asked me to run for other things. And right now that's not what I'm inclined to do. So I appreciate being asked, but it always has to be you making the decision on why it's right time, right issues. You're the right person for the moment kind of thing too. And I was also going to add that, you know, this is a service. I mean, it's like going into the military or the foreign service. You are on call all the time, especially during the pandemic. I mean, our poor freshmen who just came in got none of the bonuses with the free food at the receptions and the breakfast. They are just on, on their floor do it, dealing with everyone's problems 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So it, you have to be ready for that. Um, it's, you know, drinking from a fire hose is the analogy we use. So whenever you're ready, we want you, but you need to be ready. Yeah, no, and I, I think a lot of people don't realize that that even in like an easy district, say you don't, it's, it may not be hard, like you get the nomination, then you're going to automatically win the seat if, if it's a Demo- real blue or real red seat. But the job itself is pretty 24-7. I mean, I, people often call me and ask about it. And I said, well, you know, are you used to taking two weeks summer vacations because I- <laughs> any for 10 years (laughs) so when i was in office i those times when you august when congress is out of session that's when i really spent intensively going around my district i remember one year the only day i had off in august was because i needed to have a minor medical procedure done (laughs) and that seemed like a vacation (laughs) so um it, it is, but it's such a privilege and like you don't have to do it your whole life and you know i think you do want the time to be right and for you to be able to devote yourself. So, I mean, my husband was supportive. You know, he was great in kind of handling everything that I couldn't handle at home. Um, you know, financially, we could afford to do it. My kids, were, my kids, my parents were all healthy, so I didn't have any challenges there. So that makes it, um, you know, a, a very, uh, you know, an easier way. But even with that, with, with ideal conditions, it, it is... Um, very time consuming, but it's enjoyable. You know, I mean, you do, you love it. You know, it's opportunity, wake up in the morning and you can see something wrong, you read in the paper or see on the news and you can go to work and say, how do we fix this? What can we do? And that is, and having that megaphone to do that is very satisfying, which is why you don't go to Cancun when you're in these jobs. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. Both of you just talked about kind of the first half of making sure you're ready to run and just encouraging women to run. But second half of that is actually getting people to vote for you. And I think uh, an assumption that's made often is if a woman runs, 
women will vote for for her. But in 2016, Republicans had an opportunity to nominate a woman to be their nominee, and Democrats also had that opportunity in 2020 uh, through both of their primaries. Do you think there's a reason that voters in both parties passed on the opportunity to nominate a woman to be their nominees, uh, presidential nominees in their respective parties? Um, and we, uh, Representative Cup, we can start with you. I think that, you know, the our women who were the nominees did get a lot of recognition and a lot of support, especially from women. But I think in the end, it came down to who could beat Donald Trump. And that is, you know, South Carolina was a defining feature of that um, when he got the nomination there, uh, Joe Biden. And, you know, we all just had to come together. We had to put aside any personal preferences for other people and do anything we had to do to get Donald Trump out of office. And so I think that's what it was. And a lot of people were upset. Um, I had lots of women friends and colleagues who were very strong supporters of other folks. Um, but, you know, we had to get this done. And so I think it was just a matter of being practical and knowing what people in the country, whom they would vote for. And that the majority was 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 Biden. After the 2016 race, which was obviously a shock to most people, including me, um, yeah. I didn't expect and, and I wasn't, you know, obviously I'm, I'm a Republican. I wasn't rooting for uh, Hillary, but I also did not support Donald Trump. I supported others in the primary, and then I actually, you know, was on the ticket with him opposing him in 16, as I did in 20. So that's never fun. Uh, but uh, I, I do think the fact that Trump had beaten Hillary Clinton had an impact on who was selected in 20, because there were the sort of seen as the, the blue collar sort of, because Trump's vote is disproportionately male. So it was who could claw back enough of the men. Because Trump lost plenty of, you know, lost all the professional women, suburban women in droves. I mean, that's, as his own pollster explained to him, that is why he lost, because he just hemorrhaged um, women and professional men, too. Um, so I think when, I, I think there was a factor of it. And I think also both in 16 and in 20, both in the primary and in the general elections, that part of that is sexism that is still there. I mean, I think if you, if you had a, I always, you know, when you see something going on, that an outrageous thing that a male does, I think if a female did it, what would that be like? So imagine a female Donald Trump, right? <laughs> who said the things he did, who tweeted, who had had four bankruptcies, was on a third marriage, you know, overweight, sort of slovenly looking, I think, um, <laughs> crazy hair. Um, if that were a woman, you wouldn't get the time of day. Things are always going to be more difficult. And then you look at something that's going on today with Governor Cuomo. If a 60-something-year-old woman was sort of cornering young men in their office, asking them about their sex life, can you imagine? I mean, that sound, it's so bizarre because I don't even, I can't imagine anybody doing that. You know, that's just not something you've ever heard of. And it's very... So the fact that even people are thinking about, gee, is that wrong? Or, you know, oh, you know, what was misunderstood? Can you imagine if a woman governor, I can't even think of a woman governor who would think of doing that. Um, so, uh, you know, Democrat or Republican, it's just not something you've ever heard. Not that there couldn't be. I mean, you did have 
the case of the woman in California who was exploiting her own, you know, had relationships with her staff, which is, you know, I think it was appropriate she retired because that is, um, that's something that violates all the business norms and should be, you shouldn't have that going on with a member of Congress either. The men get away with it more, yes, but that doesn't mean that women offenders should be excused because the men are. But I do think when any of these sort of things come up, if you just put sort of a, you know, a female face on some of these things, it makes you understand how much more difficult it is for women in both parties and how you do have some of that uh, things going on. Now, one thing where I do think you do get somewhat of an advantage on now for Republicans, I know as we had to, you know, as there are a lot more Democrat women, so we like, you know, in general, more women is good. Now, even the guys say, well, that's a woman's seat, so we better get a woman. <laughs> and that was the case in my case when I usually ran against women. So that made it easier. Actually, my easiest race was when I ran against a guy and won by 16 points in my first race to Congress. But um, women candidates, on the re- when women Republicans are running in like tough seats or they, they have like a couple point advantage to say a traditional man. So now that is something that Republicans understand. So they often are seeking out um, women to run against women. But I don't think we should just, you know, I, I don't like that that's, okay, we're going to, if you if you have a woman you're running against, then you can have the seat. But if it's a guy, we're not going to let you have it. So I don't mean to in any way imply that, but that has opened up more opportunities. But now I think just because there are an historic number of women in Congress, more people are going, you know, it's the, if you can see it, you can be it. More, if you have more women in your state house, I mean, in your state, you know, your governor or Congress, then more women start running for local office, for state office. And, you know, there's a reason why, you know, California has, you know, some of the most women, right? Because you've had, you know, Republican senators, you know, now a vice president from California, attorney generals. I guess you haven't had a governor yet, right? (laughs) Who's a woman? Virginia hasn't had any of those, any statewide women yet on a lot of those things. Vermont also, Vermont is not a state that has ever had a female senator. Because Bernie Sanders and Patrick Leahy have been there for a hundred years and don't want to leave. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it does definitely, I think, set set a tone. Um, just being here in California, like women seem a lot more prone to just run without being asked. But I think having those uh, kind of role models, if you will, is an important part of that. Um, while I was researching for our conversation today, I came across a Pew Research um, report that showed that since about 2011, Women have um, women as a block of voters have been shifting to the left, and so that probably also has a lot to do with our country becoming more diverse. But you know, the rate shifted. Um, the the rate of the shift increased a lot around 2016, uh, and kind of reached its peak in 2018. Now this graph didn't have any 2020 data yet, but so I went and looked at some exit polls for from 2020, and it shows that this shift continued to accelerate. What do you think is leading to the shifts we're seeing with how women um, identify ideologically and, um, you know, that we've seen from 2011, but especially between 2016 and and now? Yeah, Representative Hunt, do you want to start with? Sure. So I think a lot of this has to do with a reaction to President Trump. So he he is a Republican. 
still, and um, people that were in that party were very much adverse to everything he stood for, especially women, um, and especially Republican women. And, you know, when I ran in 2018, I was in a very Republican seat, um, R plus 10, that Trump won by a lot. And I had to go door to door to Republican uh, households and independent households and talk to, the, to these folks. And they were very upset um, it, with what was going on, especially if the women were alone and not standing beside their husbands. That made a huge difference in what they would tell me. So I just think, you know, people reacted to what was going on. And they have mostly in North Carolina not gone to Democrat but become independent. Um, and we've also had some, you know, families where the husband's still Republican and the wife is independent. So, you know, I just think that people did, did not and do not approve of what was going on, how he was running the country, how he treated women, how he treated all the issues women care about, um, which are quality of life, um, a future for their children, how our climate is deteriorating every single day, um, now the pandemic. So that, I think it was mostly a reaction to him. Yeah, I, I would agree. I think he's certainly, um, you know, having been on the ticket with him in 16, it was, it was not pleasant, <laughs> and particularly when I was opposing him. Um, and in 18, it was obviously a lot worse. And by that time, you know, he was in office. He had, you know, you know all the things that we know that, you know, really caused a wave election in 18. So I think what'll be... But the fact that Republicans did so, what Republican women, particularly like in the seats that were flipped, I think there are 10 or 14, they were disproportionately women, like almost all of them that were flipped. Most of them that were flipped were women or minority candidates or a veteran or, you know, some combination thereof. So that has been a big help now in terms of saying, you know, as we want, if we want to get some of these seats back, we need to have women candidates who are not in the Trump mold. And I, that's why I think you see people like, you know, Michelle Steele and Young Kim in California, you know, who ran ahead. Obviously, Susan Collins ran well ahead of Trump. I know as, as we're recruiting candidates, um, we are looking for sort of those state legislators who've been problem solvers and aren't just sort of these ideologues who don't want to, because a lot of people... I mean, a lot of these guys, frankly, they just go to Congress to, you know, come on TV and do the talking points and they don't realize like it's, it's no, it's a job, you know. <laughs> I mean, if you look at some of these Freedom Caucus guys, they rarely pass a bill, if any, you know, but they're on TV every night talking about this or that. And, you know, I, I think they are, were very instrumental in the president losing. So I do thank them for that. Um, <laughs> but if Republicans want to be back in the majority, they are going to need more problem solvers, um, more diversity, and people who represent, they're just, and, and, and I, I, I think Republican women did win too, because I think there was a perception that a lot of Democrats, not Democrat women necessarily, but a lot of Democrats were going too far left, and they didn't want to go there. So they were able to vote against Trump at the top of the ticket, but then still vote for a Republican and kind of keep that balance. I mean, I think we are a center centrist country. It goes sort of center left or center right. And if you take it too far one direction or the other, there's a snapback. You know, we saw it in, you know, 1994 with Bill Clinton, where people thought, okay, you're going too far, bring it back. Um, same thing. I mean, I ran in 2009 in the state house, and I certainly 
found, you know, the independent voters were going my way because of, you know, initial feeling that uh, Obama had gone too far. Obviously, you know, 63 seats lost. That was that was definitely a perception. Same thing then with Trump. So I, I think Biden won because he was seen, whether or not he's going to be, he was seen as centrist. And I think as some of the Democrats try and pull him further to the left, it actually helps him with those independent voters because when he doesn't go to the left on some of these things, um, it's seen as, okay, well, he's actually trying to, you know, kind of include me. So, you know, because when you pull it way too far one way or the other, then you're kind of leaving the centrists that are the deciding votes out in the cold. So you've got to, you know, take these issues and build a majority. Like, you know, right now the, um, you know, the COVID bill, even though Republicans think and some Democrats think it's too big of a price tag, I think when you go out and you poll it, it does have majority support. So if you're President Biden and you're pushing that, you at least know you have bipartisan poll support, even if you don't have members. But if you go out and try and push some other thing because you have the votes when you don't have the public with you, that's what's going to lead to that snapback. So I, I think that's what happened with us. Get I mean, we were supposed to, in 20, Republicans were supposed to lose like 10 or 15 seats. And I can tell you, having looked at some of those polls the week before, that that wasn't inconsistent with the polls we were seeing. So we did see um, that split ticket voting, which was a pleasant surprise because we were seeing in our polling, Trump was losing in Georgia, but we were still holding the state reps. That actually is what happened. Um, same thing in Arizona. Trump lost, but our state house people lost. So where that goes in the future, I think is going to be very open. And I think women can play an important role in kind of keeping, seeing if the center can hold, as they say. (laughs) Yeah, well, you know, I think most people would agree that an important part of that center is, um, includes suburban women who have been one of the big, biggest shifts that we've seen uh, recently in our, um, in in electoral outcomes and the, the strength that they've had in determining who's winning these elections. But I think, especially in, this last cycle, but generally there's been a perception about who the suburban woman is. People most likely think that it is a white woman um, who maybe, well, I don't know what they think about her employment, but I'm assuming they think a lot of soccer moms who maybe don't work full time and have a lot of time to um, yeah, devote. That's, that's not it. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I would love to hear from uh, both of you um, about who these suburban women actually are um, and what's driving their decisions. And, Representative Hunt, you mentioned knocking on doors and getting an especially different response when um, a woman answered the door without her husband there. So I'd also love to hear how you all have, um, if you've interacted with voters, women voters who have been influenced by their husband, and if you think that's changing with how they show up to the ballot box. I think it's the opposite. I think the women were, I think the reason you had a lot of suburban men off from Trump was because they're listening to their wives who are much more engaged. So I think the whole suburban shift has been, well, it's been more women than men. I think um, I, in my area, you know, I have very high professional women. Thing. I, I did not run into too many people who were voting some way because of their husband. That was a, that would be an exception, not the rule, but I would find um, men who were, you know, listening to their wives on different issues and, 
in, in that. I, I think the suburban women are, they, they are, you know, in, in my district, they would be, you know, school principals, you know, they'd be, you know, you'd have a Latina school principal, you'd have an African-American school principal and teachers, you'd have an Indian uh, doctor, you'd have a uh, woman startup at a tech company, um, you'd have people leading, uh, well, I have government employees, so you'd have all kinds of women because women are very representative in the top ranks of the federal employee, you know, career system. So, I mean, you know, the CIA director, Linda woman. So I think every profession you can think of that, yeah, it's, it's not the, and actually certainly in my district, but I think this is, you know, common now in many districts across the country, uh, women like 40% or more of women make more than their husbands. So the women are often the primary breadwinners too. So I think Republicans often haven't, you know, sort of adapted to that because that may not because we are in more solid red districts, but after this redistricting that's coming up, and you know, North Carolina was an example about redistricting sort of has already impacted that. Everyone is going to have more diverse districts uh, now. If you're in New York City, you're probably not going to have any, you know, worry about having a Republican district. But um, our com- my community, I think, is sort of resp- my the district I represented is where the whole country is going as a future is where it's very diverse. Um, but it's also very integrated. So it is a community that is used to living and working and their kids going to school with people who, you know, it, it's a uh, international community. And I was sitting on, you know, 10 years ago, being on a uh, graduation stage with uh, Justice Scalia, whose son was, his grandson was uh, his namesake, I think it was graduating from high school. And he said, this is like the United Nations here really is great. And if you go to any kindergarten, you see that diversity. And I think oftentimes our members might not be doing that. And I think because rural districts are going to have to grow because that's where the shrinking population is. And suburban districts are going to shrink after redistricting for the most part, because they've grown. And so they need to, you know, get smaller geographically. I think you're going to have a lot of people. waking up and realizing this country is a lot more integrated and diverse. And I think that's going to be a good thing because I found that enjoyable to work with a a diverse community and see the future, you know, in those kindergartens, in those high school graduations and realize these are kids who've all grown up working together, living together, they're friends, they're marrying. That's normal. Representative Hunt. I live in a part of Charlotte that is not quite as diverse as the one that she was speaking about. We are mostly white, a huge number of retired folks. And that is the the people that I was talking about with the husband and the wife on the doorstep. I have a huge number of retirement communities. Um, And so we, we are a little bit different. We, most of our, even public schools are still very segregated, which is an unfortunate thing that has happened in the past few years due to some lawsuits. So, you know, depending on where you are in Charlotte, it is according to how diverse it is. So my area is not like that. Um, and so, you know, our suburban moms are a, lo- a ton of soccer moms who a lot of them are at home with the children, the husband's working. So that still exists. We do have women, you know, who are in the workforce as well. But, um, you know, the main thing is they care about what happens to their children. They care about what happens to their family. 
And that is across the board. It doesn't matter if you're Republican and independent or Democrat. And they want what to have a better world for their children. So they want there to be, you know, an earth that is beautiful and that ha- doesn't have horrible hurricanes and tornadoes and, st- you know, everything that we have right now. They want something free from the pandemic. That's going to be another thing that we're going to add to what we say on the doorstep. We've got to have safety. Let me tell you, that's been a huge issue in North Carolina. Even in the state house, we have our folks who are Democrats who are wearing masks. I wear two masks to work every day. We've got folks on the other side who have never worn masks. We are in the same room for hours at a time with each other, and there is nothing we can do to socially distance. So that has been a huge issue in North Carolina. It will continue to be one, even though things are getting better. Uh, We hope not to go, well, we know our governor is not going to do what the governor of Texas just did and, and release the mask mandate. But but so, we, you know, we know what people care about. We know women are the main, you know, people that take care of making sure things are going to work out for the entire family, including the extended family. So many women now and men are taking care of their parents and their children at the same time. So, you know, I think that we, that's just another way to think about suburban women. I mean, it's not just one size fits all. We've got everything in this country. The South still, there are parts of it that are still not very diverse. Um, And that's in a, I mean, I'm in a city. So once we go out into our rural areas, things are completely different. We've got entire parts of North Carolina that are completely non-diverse. And, you know, people there still extremely conservative. That's where we had all of the folks who were completely pro-Trump. My congressional district is nine, which um, Bishop is the congressman. And, you know, he was one of the folks who voted um, against certifying the election. And um, so, you know, we've got everything here. But suburban women are the core of people that are going to take care of their families and take care of the, the world, make sure things work well. And we need to make sure we are listening to them and helping them with what they need. And I think they they are the majority makers. You know, wherever you are, they usually are because they, you know, sort of lead in a lot of different areas. And I I think one of the things that I haven't really heard either party talk about, and I know when, you know, I, I, I talk to candidates who are running and when they ask, you know, what do you think are the issues? I said, well, I'm not hearing anyone talk about, you know, what is, Post-pandemic, what are we going to do to get children caught up from this year of being out of school or being a diminished education experience, particularly for those most disadvantaged kids who now were already behind and now they've essentially lost a year. So I'm happy to hear a lot of people talking about that they're, they may open the school like in April or even this month, you know, depending on what your situation is. I mean, my my granddaughter has been in a private school since September with masks, very socially distanced. And when they're, if anybody had something, then they sent them home and, you know, you had your two weeks quarantine. But my husband teaches in a school where he's been hybrid also. And so, but for kids who have been, who've gotten behind, I think a summer school program is, should be, I would be actively encouraging people to push that. And there should be. That's, that's where women would be the logical ones to say, let's get them, keep them in these classrooms. They've been home too long. Once they can get back in, let's keep them in. Or it might be next summer, you're going to have to catch them up next summer. And then what are we doing about the 
all these women who've left the workforce because they are taking care of kids who are at home. And I, one of the things I've been surprised by, and I know, I, I think, unfortunately, I think Trump polarized the whole school debate to the point where you either had to be all against going to school or all for, and you couldn't have a hybrid. And since I've lived through uh, hybrid with both my husband and my grandchildren and daycare centers have stayed open pretty much everywhere. So we've had daycare centers work pretty well because they are constantly making those little kids wash their hands. And my little three-year-old grandson is wearing his mask. And on the ground, women, because they're mostly running the daycare centers and a lot of the schools that are open and operating, they are doing a good job of finding this middle ground. Yet the political debate has all been all or nothing. And I don't think the, you know, so that hasn't been satisfactory. And now that women have left the workforce because of that, I just thought there would be more of an uprising over that because how are we going to get women back on track with this losing a year of their promotions, of their advantages? Now, I do think there are going to be some good things that come out of this where we're going to see you can work from home more. I mean, my, my daughter and her husband have been, he's a government employee. She works for a company. They've both been able to work from home quite a bit and then juggle and deal with this. And so that has worked out well for them. And I think they want to continue to do that because it's been a nice lifestyle change. I have a son who works at Facebook. He gets to permanently work from home. He's got three little kids. His wife loves, you know, sometimes he can't get all the work done when the kids are around. But it's, I think these new lifestyles afterwards, let's embrace the ones that have worked. Let's get the people who've gotten, you know, disadvantaged over this past year. Let's target. I think one of the problems with this, um, the, the pandemic bill that's being voted on right now, I mean, I expect it'll go through, but I think it needs to be targeted to a lot of those disadvantaged populations. You know, like my daughter did get the first checks, but frankly, they haven't lost any money. They haven't lost any income. They have actually saved money because they've been at home and haven't had all the costs of, you know, going, traveling, you know, commuting, and their kids have been able to be in school. So they've been pretty well placed, but the people who haven't, I'd like to see more of the money targeted to them and to their children who've gotten behind. And I think that's going to be an area where I would see somebody like a Jamie Herrera Butler, a Susan Collins work with Democrat women and try and get, and I think on the state house level, I think you'll see a lot of women working on that. And Nora O'Donnell did a whole series on TV, on CBS News about that, which I thought was, it took a woman to do that, right? (laughs) The guys didn't always see that. So I think that's going to be a big issue. And I think it should be. Let me just say, we just passed a a comprehensive summer school bill here in North Carolina. Yeah. So it's five weeks. I expect that to continue. I don't think one summer is going to make it up, uh, especially for kids, like you said, that are disabled or disadvantaged. And then I also want to say there's a whole group of young people in their 20s, I know because my daughter's one of them, who had started on their career paths, had good jobs. She was working at Marriott's corporate headquarters, and it all went away, the entire department. So I have so many friends now whose 20-year-olds are living back at home. They had been working places like New York in the theater district. That's gone. And so we have got a long way to go to make it up for these 
20 year olds and you know of course a lot of other folks as well but in when your entire life is derailed like that it's going to take years to make it up and we need the money but we also need opportunities so that's something that definitely needs to happen we have uh, about 10 minutes left so we're going to switch over to audience questions so that we can um, get some of those in i'm going to try to combine some of these so we can cover a lot of them. But we have one question. Does too many legislators consider what is good for the party as opposed to what is good for the country? Will this be any different with more women legislators? And I just want to add in a couple more questions that were related to policy that I think are relevant here. We had a question um, about women legislators being more or less likely to vote for gun control. And then um, a question specifically about Republican women and voting for policies like pay equity and family leave. And so I think to wrap all of that together, you know, the question is, do women legislators look at the world in a more similar way than other elected officials? And possibly will that lead them to support similar policies? Or are women legislators like the men? They believe what they believe, and that's how they're going to approach their jobs. I think on things like uh, paid family leave and that I I worked on that when I was in in Congress. And I think you'll see more on that front because I think that's one of the post-pandemic things that people have kind of realized. And I think the whole workplace flexibility, particularly for professional women, obviously, you know, professionally, you can work from home. You know, I'm working from home. I've, I've been largely working from home, but you still, you know, meet your metrics and do all that. It's different for, you know, that, that's, why, that's why I think, you know, like the help should go to women in different areas where that's not the situation they should have. But I do think that you do find women have more sensitivities in that area because, you know, I'm from a four-generation family right now. So I've got, you know, my kids and grandkids and my parents live with me part of the year. So I'm seeing all those issues. So I'm just sort of more in touch with that, you know, unless, you know, probably more guys are less likely to be dealing with all that or sort of, sort of get it. I think on the gun issues, I think that tends to be more rural suburban, you know, for the most part, that's why that's where that ends up splitting down because there's just a different um, mindset um, from um, where people are, 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 where they live and what they've grown up with on that. So I think that is different, but on, but I think particularly on these pay equity, equity issues on, you know, I know, I mean, companies, court, Corporate America, I mean, I worked a lot on these pay equity issues too when I was in Congress. And like remember we had Northrop Grumman came in and they had done all they, they had a lot of um, programs to really promote like getting veterans in, getting more diversity in. And that was part of, I mean, it was a very integral part of their of their workforce and, and their whole um, economic well-being. And they had done these great studies that we could go out and promote to other businesses showing. It's not just the right thing to do because of all the obvious reasons that we think it's the right thing to do. It actually makes you more money. So it's you do the right thing, the right policy, the right thing to do, and everybody does better. So more diverse workforces are more profitable. And that is something that so if, if your company isn't diverse, you are going, you're just not going to be in touch with the communities that you need to market to or to work with. And that's, and I think the same thing is true for a party. So I always said the same thing is true for all these businesses, which they need to uh, diversify is if a party isn't diverse, you're not going to be in the majority for very long because when you look and see, oh, it's all white men there. I don't think I want to work there. And as you're recruiting young people, if they don't see themselves 
not just in the company, but at the very highest levels of the company. If they don't look and see that they've got African-American women, they've got Latino women, they've got, you know, every, you know, they've got that whole picture that is what they've been used to in school or college, then they're not going to, you're not going to attract the best talent that way either. So that's, I think more the companies are, the bigger companies are leading in that way. Others are following. I think the government policies can help with a lot of that. And one of the things that we had in the Republican tax bill, I know, you know, a lot of Democrats didn't like it, but one of the things we did there was put in incentives for small businesses to be able to provide for family leave because a lot of small businesses, a mandate was difficult, but we put, you know, more support there. So not only, you know, and actually it was geared to lower income workers. So I know, for example, Walmart went from whether it was five or six weeks paid leave to 10 or 12 weeks. I can't remember exactly what it was, but they significantly increased their paid leave. And that those provisions was were for the lower income workers and, and providing those incentives there. So I think wherever we can provide incentives, particularly for um, for smaller businesses and to help them be able to provide those same opportunities. But, and, and I think women do tend to, you know, be more engaged with that. But I think now my kids, all three of my kids have kids now and their spouses, they, they all both, well, two of them, they both work and their husbands are very sensitive to all these things too. I mean, they take paid leave in DC. My son who his business is in DC he had to take pay if he took paid his company gave him paid leave, but then DC government gave him an extra thousand dollars a week to take paid leave. <laughs> so if he didn't take it, he was going to lose the pay. So that's a pretty good deal. Not too many states have that, but <laughs> you know he was home. Of course, it was the pandemic, so he was home anyway. But <laughs> Representative Hunt, do you um, have any thoughts on kind of women legislators as a unified front or or more um, actors of their parties? So I think it varies. We are seeing more um, Republicans and Democrats working together this time. We are actively seeking Republican sponsorship for bills that we are interested in. We are asking them if we could be on their bills. We are trying are desperately to work together um, to get some good things happening in North Carolina. We wish we had things like paid, paid family leave. Um, we are not there yet. We we obviously introduce the bills every year, but they don't go anywhere. So we have a long way to go here, but we also know that in things like gun control, that is not an issue that can be brought up by legislators, Republican or Democrat in our legislature, uh, because there's such a strong group of folks who are very pro um, Second Amendment. And so the Freedom Freedom Caucus is alive and well in our um, state house. And so you know, we did have one woman who lost her seat in 2020, who was a very big pro gun control person, one of our folks who lost and was beaten by a Republican man. So we have to be careful what we, you know, try to push, but we do really try to work with Republicans anytime we can. And we do find that the Republican women often are very interested in, in the same issues we are. And it's just a matter of getting it through their caucus. Yeah which is important. I'm going to, we have uh, another question here that I think will be a great question to end on. March is Women's History Month. Which women political leaders do you encourage us to remember and honor this month? Who has been especially important and inspiring for you? And um, I'm happy to start. They asked that all three of us answered. So I'll be really quick. I would say definitely both of the women that I worked for, but um, Senator Hagan was, I worked for her. That was my first job. 
And I had no idea what politics was, how it worked, um, but I had interned at the White House and was now obsessed with having a career in politics. And I think it was an introduction to Capitol Hill and politics that most people did not get. She was so kind and warm. She did not go directly into her office. You know, there's like a back door you can go to to go into your office. She came throughout the entire suite, said hi to everyone. You know, as a staff assistant, she knew my name. And after she lost in 2014, she helped me get my next job. And then she was a fellow at, I went to graduate school at the Kennedy School. She was a fellow there before I got there and helped me kind of decide if I should stay on the Hill or, or go um, to graduate school. And so she, um, just an inspiration, a great woman and leader in North Carolina and was really sad when she got sick and then when she ultimately passed away. But look her up. She did a great job campaigning in 2008 uh, when she was elected and, and beat Elizabeth Dole. One of my favorites is my actual grandmother, who was the first woman on the Board of Health. This is my father's mother. And, you know, my father went on to, of course, be the four-term governor. But she, back in that time period, the 30s and 40s, you know, that was just an unheard of thing to be in any kind of, of office, even though it was an appointed office. But also, I want to mention RBG is everybody's favorite, but she just had a, a remarkable life. I never met her, but I've read a lot about her since, since she's passed away and, and once you know the movie came out and everything. So I just think being up against all of the odds she was up against, and as a small, I'm a short person too, that even made it better because you know she's so strong and vital and she kept going after cancer over and over. And after so many setbacks, and she just is a remarkable person that I really look up to as a woman and as a leader. Barbara? We can all, um, we should all do daily planks. And I <laughs> because I was, when I, I remember reading, you know, years ago when that she did that every day, I was like, okay, I better, I need to do that. <laughs> that, that was an inspiration too. I think in my case, sort of growing up, you know, the political figures as I was growing up sort of in the 80s being involved were Ronald Reagan and Maggie Thatcher. So I certainly, um, you know, did admire Maggie Thatcher. She obviously came up through a very male-dominated uh, system. And so I did find her of interest. You know, when I was growing up in politics, working on the Hill, there weren't a lot of women, Republican women in, in office. Um, Connie Morella, who was a congresswoman from Maryland in my area. So when I was working for my congressman before, you know, when I was a staffer, um, she was in our office, and then when I was a chief counsel, she was on my committee, and she was so wonderful and gracious. And then when I ran for office, she just was such a great uh, counselor to just help me with everything. And, you know, politically, we probably differed in a lot of ways, but she, I just thought she's just a lovely in- inspiration. Her, her sister had died and I think had six or seven children, and she raised her own children and her sister's children. So she was in Congress while she had, like, eight or nine kids. Her husband was awesome. So having a good husband is a very essential thing, I think, or spouse in politics. It's a big help. Um, And so she, and and then now, as I look at some of the women, um, I'm very inspired by her. My Liz Cheney and Jamie Herrera Butler, who stood up to Trump and just kind of said, I, you know, I'm just going to stand up to a bully and do this. And I think everybody's you know, kind, you know, people look at it and, you know, different press call me and like, oh, why are they doing it? It's like, because they're there to get things done. They aren't there to be somebody. And I think that's very important for anybody who wants to get in politics. 
go in for the right reasons. I mean, it's a great privilege. It's wonderful to do this and have this privilege to be able to help your own community. But, you know, be prepared to, you know, stand up and, you know, do the right thing, you know, in, in situations like that and, and take the risks. And I, I, I think, I don't know if I've recommended this before to folks, but I always, rec- I, I do really like uh, Cheryl Sandberg's TED Talk on um, Lean In, because one of the things she talks about is women taking risks and often women are, don't take as many risks in their career or doing the, and I think, you know, not, I'm not talking crazy risks. I'm not, I mean, I, I am not a Marjorie Green fan. I'm actually on two boards that opposed her and supported the male who ran against her instead of her. So, you know, there's plenty of women who we don't need to, you know, I'm not going to be lauding, but um, I'm, I'm happy when I see uh, people like Liz and, and Jamie, who, uh, I mean, Jamie, when people said, gee, why is she doing that? I said, well, this is a woman who had a child who, when she was, pregnant they told her her child would never live said it had a rare disease and she just jumped in figured out how to deal with it her child is now doing very well it's like she does not shy away from tough fights yeah she she is a fighter and so she's there for she works a lot on maternal and maternal health issues and helping those who you know uh we both uh, you know didn't support the when the repeal of Obamacare went the direction of the Freedom Caucus and kind of went over the edge, we both opposed it, despite, you know, a lot of Republicans wanting that because of that. And Jamie was a great leader there. So I'm encouraged to see women leaders like that stand up and just just do the right thing and not worry about the consequences. Well, thank you both so much for this conversation. I think it was excellent. And we covered a lot of ground. Um, Thank you to everyone who joined us today. But thank you so much. And we're going to close out with that. Thanks for coming, everyone. Thank you for joining us on The Bully Pulpit. It helps us a lot when you subscribe and rate the show five stars wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at USC POL Future. That's USC POL Future. Follow us on Facebook and YouTube and visit our website for upcoming programs. 